Thank you very much for uh, playing our slides, Deja Brock, as always. And welcome to all of you on this uh, spring evening. Thank you for setting aside a little time to join our Fireside Chat series. I am Will Fenton. I'm the Director of Research and Public Programs at the Library Company of Philadelphia, which, as you have probably heard me say before, is one of America's oldest colonial institutions. Uh, it was founded by Benjamin Franklin back in 1731, but we changed a little bit over the past 300 odd years. Today, we are an independent research library uh, with specializations in all things early Americana, print, visual culture, um, women's history, African-American history, business history, and political economy. And we have a wonderful group of fellows, research fellows, who um, uh, continue to enliven our uh, little library and also support things like this series. I started Fireside Chats a little over a year ago, actually about 13 months now. And when I kicked it off, I did not anticipate uh, continuing this on Zoom for 13 months. And I certainly didn't anticipate doing it on a weekly basis. And it wouldn't be possible without the generosity of our uh, learning community helping to sustain it. With that, it is my pleasure to introduce tonight's speaker. Uh, Carolyn, may I ask you to pop on with me? There's the hey, start of the show. Carolyn Eastman is Associate Professor of History at Virginia Commonwealth University. Her research focuses on the cultural and intellectual history of early America and the Atlantic world, political culture, and the history of print, oral, and visual media. Her book, A Nation of Speechifiers, Making an American Public After the Revolution, published by U Chicago 2009, excuse me, received the James Broussard Best First Book Prize from Shear. Very nice. Her second book and the subject of tonight's fireside chat is The Strange Genius of Mr. O, Celebrity and the Invention of the United States, which is hot off the presses. It's published by um, uh, UNC Press in March of this year, March 2021, as part of a new initiative by the Omohundro Institute to seek broader audiences for books about early American history. And I would hasten to add that above all of these other accomplishments and accolades, uh, Dr. Eastman was also a library company Shear Fellow in 2015, if I have it right. That's right. All right, lovely. Well, let me turn it over to you. Okay, I am gonna share my screen here. Oh, actually, no, I'm not. I'm gonna wait for a second. Um, okay, so first of all, I, I want you to imagine that you lived in the United States that was deeply divided by political differences, racial differences, religious differences, social differences, a United States where people between different regions had a hard time getting along. And, um, and into this kind of environment, a celebrity appeared, a celebrity who was, who really had all the hallmarks of a classic celebrity. Um, he had glamorous sets of friends. He had, he wore eccentric clothing. He was known for being narcissistic. He held sort of scandalous religious ideas. Um, he had a terrible narcotics habit. And on top of all of that, he, he liked to tell his American friends that he was the heir to an earldom in Scotland. Um, 
And now, you know, I begin this way because I think that in some ways, the way I've set this up, you might imagine that I'm going to be telling a purely funny story, a, a funny story about um, celebrity as a, a light subject, a light subject that doesn't have a whole lot of scholarly weight. Um, but in fact, I think that celebrity is a really interesting phenomenon to consider when you're looking at periods of time like the early 19th century, when the country was as divided as it's ever been. Because celebrity ultimately functions as a kind of mirror onto the, the people who ultimately hold up those celebrities. So if you think about the ways in which celebrity ultimately, um, you know, I mean, you and I, for example, could disagree about how we feel about current day celebrities. It's easy, I think, for us to think of current day celebrities as well, it's, it's sort of a, a, a regrettable world that we live in, that we find ourselves talking about the Kardashians, or we find ourselves talking about um, Beyonce, and on and on. And yet, you know, if, if I sort of talk about how much I love Beyonce, and you disagree, the disagreement there is is actually kind of interesting. Your dislike for the celebrity that I love is about your discernment, about your ability to determine who deserves our, our love, our accolades, our appreciation. And, and my love of that person also reveals a lot about the kind of person I think ought to be vaunted into the spotlight, who ought to deserve public attention, more attention maybe than the person gets. And so ultimately celebrity tells us a lot about ourselves. And, and of course, into this, you know, very fragmented United States when, when James Ogilvie was, was traveling around and gathering a lot of attention, he never tied the nation together. His celebrity, and they certainly used those terms, they called him a celebrity, they, they referred to him as a celebrity orator, um, that never brought people together. People continued to disagree. People loved him, people hated him and so on. But, but the, very, the very positioning of a celebrity like that ultimately gave people something shared to discuss. And that's a really interesting phenomenon in this period. Okay, so now I'm gonna share my screen. Um, and I'll get this up. Okay, so, so what I'm showing you here is an engraving of James Ogilvie as, uh, as portrayed in an image by a, an American artist named Charles Robert Leslie. Um, and this was probably done when he was in his mid forties and living in London at the time, at the very end of his uh, career, he had gone back to London. Um, he was originally from Scotland and had lived in England as a young, young man. And um, I think what you can see here is a really striking image of somebody who ultimately in the United States became a household name. He became a household name for his eloquence. He was and a man who traveled the United States giving public lectures, he, he 
had begun life as a school teacher in Virginia and had really spent 15 years of his life from the time he was 20 years old uh, teaching school, but ultimately found that not only was this a really difficult job, in fact, he said at one point, that there were only two things that allowed him to survive the long hours, the low status, the low pay of being a school teacher. And one of those things was opium. <laughs> so uh, I think that it's it's fair to say that school teaching was something that, that really made his job hard. But at the end, through the course of that um, long career as a school teacher, he did develop a really unusual skill as a public speaker. He learned through the course of teaching boys as he did for all those years, he learned um, how to sort of convey excitement to his, to his listeners. He learned how to position himself in ways that were very compelling. And he also learned that he had a unique ability to get people to think together in a room about important subjects, important subjects that were uh, important to civic culture at the time. So in 1808, when he abandoned school, teacher, school teaching and began to travel the country giving public speeches, his lecture subjects included topics that would have been really significant and and somewhat contentious uh, to people at the time. So subjects like female education, gambling, dueling, suicide, subjects that people didn't agree on, but in the course of his lectures, he gave people ways to think about these topics from all different sides. He wanted to try to reflect the different ways that people might think about these things. But of course, the subjects that he talked about were not the only things that led people to believe that he was a, a remarkably eloquent figure. In, at that time, it wasn't just what you said, it was also your physical behavior as a speaker uh, in, in public. It was, it was how you appeared on stage. And so uh, I think the one thing that really got his attention, uh, people's attention was his remarkably affecting uh, way of laying out these different subjects and getting people to think together. And so I think that it's important to realize too that in, especially in large rooms where people might be sitting directly behind each other, you know, the, he never spoke in, say grand theaters, for example, with angled seats or, um, or galleries where people could, could get a great view. He was often speaking in places where, you know, people were sort of crowded together in the ballroom of a tavern or something like that. Everyone understood at the time that um, it was essential in order to understand the success of a public speaker, to see how he physically sort of portrayed that, that topic that he was discussing. And so this really gets to one of the things I find so interesting about studying the history of the spoken word, because you know we have no recorded 
images of that time. We have no photography. We have no recorded sound. We don't know how they looked, how they performed. We have to sort of, as historians, try to cobble that together using the various kinds of skills that we have as scholars. And that's really been one of the things I enjoy so much about studying this subject, because ultimately, Ogilvy became famous not so much for what he said on stage, but for this explosive electric eloquence that he displayed. And so I think it's important to understand that one of the places he got that from was guidebooks for public speaking. And I've laid out a few uh, images here and uh, really what they're showing is how one might uh, perform the declamation of a poem. And so it shows a series of six images, little figures of a man um, gesturing in different ways, using his face to convey different emotions. And underneath uh, each one of the images, it shows exactly what line from the poem was being spoken at the time. And one of the things I really want to draw your attention to in this in this image from a guidebook for uh, would-be orators, but also actors, uh, lawyers, ministers, is that at, around the text of the poem, the lines from the poem that, that help to sort of anchor the speaker to different moments of uh, postures and poses and facial expressions, there are all kinds of little codes showing exactly what you're supposed to be doing with your hands, exactly how you're supposed to be moving your feet, um, how you're supposed to have your, your body's weight on one foot rather than, than the other, or to move between those two things. These codes are incredibly complicated. In fact, I've been trying to sort of decode them and figure out how I would go about performing this poem. And it requires a lot of work and a lot of memorization. And so I think that this really helps to illustrate how much knowledge a public speaker had to have to be considered truly eloquent and how much practice that person would have to really master in order to gain this kind of attention. And now I realize that this is not going to be as enjoyable for people listening to the podcast. And I have to say that I'm ordinarily a listener of the podcast, but I'm gonna show you a short video that takes all of those images of the, the public speaker read, you know, declaiming this poem with the proper gestures and postures with the voiceover of a Scottish person sounding a bit like Ogilvy would have. So um, I, I apologize if the sound is not terrific, but I think it'll be okay. The wind was high, the window shake, the sudden start the miser wakes. Along the silent room he stalks, his back and trembles as he walks. Each lock and every bolt he tries, every creak and corner cries. Then opes the chest, the treasure story, and stands in the rapture over his hoard. But now with sudden qualms possessed, he wrings his hands, he beats his breast. A conscience stone he wildly stares, and thus his guilty soul declares, Thought the deep earth her stores can find. His heart it knows with peace of mind, 
the virtue sword, the guard of Christ, to the recompense the pains of vice. The wind was high, oh. the wind was shaped. <laughs> I didn't mean for it to start all over again. Um, so I think what you can see there is that that people at the time really believed that as you delivered lines from a poem, you absolutely wanted to have the appropriately emotional gesture, the appropriate sort of tenor of voice, the appropriate facial expression. Because imagine again, if you were in a room of 400 people, as, as Ogilvy often was delivering his uh, public speeches, you might not be able to hear everything he said, but you could see it. You could see him doing things that signaled certain kinds of emotion. You might miss some of the, the resonance of a certain kind of quoted line of poetry, but, but his gestures might convey that touching, that touching emotion. And so I think it's really important to understand that one of the things that was so uh, pleasurable about doing this research was trying to reconstruct this, this lost world of the, the performance of the spoken word and the, the physical gestures and postures that, that went into making that spoken word so meaningful. And, you know, as I'm saying this, I'm also thinking about the fact that a lot of people ask me whether this is just some kind of theater. It's, it's some kind of kabuki performance of exaggerated uh, postures or exaggerated um, facial expressions, a little bit like, but like the way that when we watch some silent movies, people, the, the people in the silent movies often exaggerate you know, horror or surprise or love or whatever it is to the point that it looks cartoonish. But I think that again, for those of you who are silent movie fans, the more you watch a silent film, the more quickly you get away from the sense that this is cartoonish or this is exaggerated or it is um, uh, um, over, overly emotional or overly sort of um, grandiose in terms of emotion and gesture, much the same way that people who love kabuki say that there is nothing cartoonish or exaggerated about it. Each one of these different kinds of performance has its own internal logic. And, and the more you watch, the more you appreciate that performance, the more you start to understand the internal logic of that world. So even though we can't get back to it, when I was trying to understand Ogilvy's many uh, triumphs, but also especially the scandals that erupted around him when people thought, for example, that he was, it, when he was in Philadelphia, when he was, they thought that perhaps he was actually advocating for atheism. How could he have given that kind of impression, given that this was a speech that he had down, he, he gave it every single time he, he got up in, in public. Um, how could people feel in one city that he was too theatrical, but in another that he was the most eloquent thing they'd ever heard? And most of all, I think that what this book tries to do is capture a world in which oratory itself 
was a major medium of communication. And, you know, we, we talk a lot about the importance of print during this era, as we should, but I think that in focusing so much on print, which we, we have all that evidence right in front of us, we lose the importance of the spoken word in a period when a lot of people described this as the golden age of American eloquence. So when you think about some of the major figures of the um, early Republic and antebellum era, everyone from Daniel Webster to Henry Clay to Abraham Lincoln to Susan B. Anthony to Frederick Douglass and on and on, what, what they appreciated so much about those figures was their eloquence, their ability to get up in public and move people, move people's hearts and minds. And that's really the kind of a world that I think Ogilvy inaugurated. Ogilvy's success between 1808 and 1820 when he died really set the US off on this, this wholehearted attention to the art of eloquence. And in fact, one of the people who attended one of his talks in Boston was Ralph Waldo Emerson, who went on to become, of course, a really wonderful Lyceum speaker and somebody who, who wrote a lot about eloquence itself. Okay, so I'm gonna talk a little bit about these descriptions of Ogilvy because I think they capture to some extent the, the way that he, he, he was not a likely celebrity in terms of his appearance. And yet when he appeared on stage, he had this sort of electrical effect. So one newspaper in 1811 described him by saying, he's tall, lean, and badly formed. His cheekbones high and prominent, his shoulders narrow and round. Indeed, his whole figure is rather ungraceful. But when he speaks, you forget his personal defects. His eye, which is bright and quick, bespeaks the energy of his mind. It is the orator then only that claims your attention and leads captive every, your every feeling. And Washington Irving, another great friend and defender of Ogilvy against critics, uh, described him in a really wonderful short story in which he sort of lightly fictionalized um, a figure that um, he later said was Ogilvy. He said, he was a pale, melancholy-looking man with a meager, pallid countenance and an awkward and embarrassed manner. But when he spoke, the change in the whole man was wonderful. His form would acquire a dignity and grace. His long, pale visage would flash with a hectic glow. His eyes would beam with intense speculation, and there would be pathetic tones and deep modulations in his voice that delighted the ear and spoke to the heart. Um, okay, so I also wanted to um, just mention here before I, I continue on that, you know, one of the things that, that went into my research was thinking about a scholar who 80 years ago, in fact, exactly 80 years ago in 1941, wrote a series of articles about Ogilvy. Um, Richard Beale Davis was a terrific scholar and found sources, you know, without 
all of our keyword searches and, and um, online databases and everything else that really are terrifically informed. But ultimately, Davis thought that, that, that James Ogilvy was eccentric and egocentric to the, to the verge of being ridiculous. He thought that, that in some ways Ogilvy was a little bit of a joke, a, a sort of, um, you know, this is, this is a sign of how gullible early Americans were to have uh, put this man on the pedestal the way they did. Um, he thought that that Ogilvy ultimately, despite his long relationship with Washington Irving that lasted decades, despite that, Ogilvy really was a kind of a sign of the naivete of Americans at the time. And when I read uh, Davis's articles, I was I was sort of caught up in it. It's it's fun, I think for us to look back on people in the past and you know, look on the eccentric clothing. For example, James Ogilvy, when he got up on stage, wore a toga. Um, that's an easy thing for us to think of as being ridiculous. Um, we can look at his narcissism. We can look at his, um, his heavy use of opium at the time even his claims to be an heir to an earldom in Scotland. And we can think that this must have been simply comical, that he's a, he's a, a joke of history. But none of that explains this incredible list of friends and supporters that Ogilvy amassed over the years. People like Thomas Jefferson, who was president when Ogilvy did a number of his talks early on in his career. People like Washington Irving, people like John Quincy Adams, who went to as many of Ogilvy's talks as he could get into. Benjamin Rush, the notable Philadelphia physician, um, the elite women who supported him and invited him to sit with them in their parlors where he often read poetry to them. Um, sometimes they would sew him a cravat in exchange. Um, all of these people supported and buttressed his career, really made it possible for him to succeed over the course of his career. And Richard Beale Davis's sort of um, bemused attitude toward Ogilvy and the audiences who appreciated him don't capture that. They don't capture the way that nobody at the time thought his wearing a toga on stage was ridiculous. I mean, not only did none of his supporters mention it, none of his critics did either. And so I think that what I wanted to do was really get to one of the things that we as, as teachers, as professors, try to get across to our, our history students from the very beginning. We want people to know that when you study the past, you're not looking to make fun of people. You're, you're trying to see them as three-dimensional human beings. And you're trying to understand the whole world in which they lived. That's what I'm trying to do in this book, is to put you as a reader into a world where wearing a toga on stage was not only 
not comical, it actually makes a lot of sense once you start to unpack the, the nature of the toga, the, its role in early American culture, and the way it conveyed not just the early United States' fantasies of becoming a great republic in the same way as classical Greece and Rome had been great republics, but also the role of the toga on a public speaker, the way that the toga signaled that a public speaker was trying to win over an audience, trying to persuade people of the proper path forward, of the proper way to think through thorny civic issues. So overall, I think that this book really tries to take each one of these different subjects from Ogilvy's roller coaster career to his heavy use of opium in a time when it was not only not illegal to, to take opium in large doses, but it actually had different effects than you would think it has given our own opioid crisis today. And so overall, I wanted to sort of use the book to create a really full picture of the early American Republic, to try to convey the ways that all of these different elements of American culture from Ogilvy's specific topics that he discussed in public from you know, topics like female education and gambling and dueling, the, the meanings of those kinds of subjects, but also the topics he didn't discuss. So why didn't he discuss the topic of slavery, for example? That's a really important story that it's worth talking about. And so overall, what the book really tries to do is um, three major things. Tell the story of, of Ogilvy and his um, long career as a public speaker tell the story of the United States uh, during this period when it was so fragmented, it was so divided um, along all kinds of lines between urban and rural and on and on. And finally, to think about how this, this one eccentric man, this one man who sought out celebrity, who was crowned with the term celebrity during this period, how that thread of celebrity actually helps us understand the early Republic in a new way. So overall, that's what the book does. And I really, really look forward to your questions. All right, so let me, um, let me stop sharing there and we can get back to um, Will. Lovely, thank you so much for that aerial view. And, um... I want to encourage all of you, if you have questions, because I think that there's a lot of contemporary resonance here that I'm going to start to gesture towards. Um, but I'd love to hear what all of you have to say. So make sure to use the Q&A thread, because I have lousy eyes, particularly once we get into the evening. And I'm going <laughs> to overlook something in chat. Though, Jelaine, I do see your two questions, and I will make sure we get to them. Um, I'd like to return to this idea about celebrity as sort of a mirror, a looking glass to the society that's making these discernments as to who is and isn't worthy of accolades, of recognition. And on one hand, early 19th century, um, it seems like a very different time. I mean, here we have a figure who is a schoolmaster, 
who may or may not be addicted to opium, <laughs> who is famous for his eloquence, right? And then if you look at, you know, the sort of celebrity culture of today, it's often um, uh, based upon one's own fame or business acumen. Um, and uh, it, it, it certainly can seem a bit farcical and it's tied very closely to sort of the mass media of the moment. So whether it's internet culture or television. Um, so on one hand, these seem like really different times, but one of the things that really jumped out to me as you were stressing how important it was to sort of see um, Mr. O in, uh, in, a, in a, his performance is that there's sort of this disjuncture between his eloquence and his physical appearance. I mean, it's registered right there. Like it's disarming to people that this guy that looks a bit shabby can be this magnetic. And I wonder if while Beale Davis is sort of um, uncharitable in his characterization of this being on the verge of, on the verge of the ridiculous, right? I wonder if like that bit of caricature actually enhances celebrity um, or if there's something about celebrity that relies upon something that's like on the precipice of being farcical. Is, is that something you thought at all about? Well, you know, that's a great question. Um, and, and certainly, you know, when you look at other celebrities of the time, they tended to be actors. So actors like Sarah Siddons in London, who was an amazing actor, um, famous, so famous, in fact, that they painted pictures of her in her most important roles, or, um, or Lord Byron, you know, this sort mm. of titled, aristocratic, um, wonderful, romantic poet, also addicted to opium, um, but who also, um, who was beautiful. Um, and, but had this scandalous sexual life. And so, um, and so I think that there is something about either paying attention to people who are beautiful um, or have a kind of um, remarkable talent or who are just sort of strikingly novel, right? And so, you know, and in some ways I'm thinking about some of the early American frontier camp preachers, right? So, so people like Lorenzo Dow or, or even earlier, you know, George Whitfield, people who, who had the ability to, um, I, you know, against all odds in this vast early, uh, you know, United States, um, travel around and, and, and win people over to God. Um, so, so I think that there's a lot of ways in which celebrity was working at the time, but eccentricity, that is such an interesting insight. And I don't know, um, he was eccentric. I mean, people really, they talked about him as a kind of Don Quixote figure at the mm -hmm. time, but not entirely in demeaning ways. I think that in some ways they, they thought of Don Quixote as kind of a romantic figure to some extent. Um, so yeah, I'm gonna have to think about that. You know, as I read those lines about how, when you look at him, he's a little funny looking and he doesn't stand up properly. And um, other people talked about uh, his, uh, 
sort of penchant for wearing dirty clothes. I mean, even in a time when nobody washed their clothes very often, he was sort of remarkably filthy. But um, I think that in some ways there is something to be said for thinking, uh, not having a lot of expectations. And then he gets on stage and just explodes in a way that takes people aback. I think that that's a really interesting way to look at it. Yeah, and I don't want to give folks the wrong impression that you're essentializing like across early America in any way, because I think one of the points that you made that was really interesting to me is that the, the, the physicality of his performance was received differently in different places. Right. So there are probably places in this very, you know, large by the standards of nation states in the early republic, very large nation with a, you know, a great deal of local variation um, where he was seen as farcical. And then there were areas where, you know, people flocked to him for his eloquence. Um, and, and, and so you had um, sort of alluded to, you know, the way that he was received in Philadelphia. Can you give us a sense like, you know, a performance in Philadelphia versus a, a performance in Charleston or something like that? Like, Give me two different types of ways that he would have been received at this time. Well, let me talk about, um, so in Philadelphia, he he really had his first major success in Philadelphia. Yeah. He, um, he came almost as soon as he'd begun speaking to Philly and just hit the ground running. He, he wound up making friends with a number of people, including Benjamin Rush, including the novelist Charles Brockton Brown. I mean, really? he really got the attention of a lot of, you know, to use an anachronistic term, a lot of the influencers of, mm -hmm. of Philly at that time. And so he, he ran through over the course of maybe three weeks, all of the six lectures that were part of his stable. And then he decided he would just stick around and give them all again. So um, but it was really after the performance of his, um, he called it the Pro Progress and Prospects of Society uh, lecture, where he's really thinking about whether given the kind of progress that humankind has made over the last 400 years or so, can it keep going? And it, it, um, it had a lot of dramatic twists and turns in the lecture, but that was the one when in the middle of the lecture, he describes the entire audience just went silent, sort of a deathly silent. And it was not the kind of good silent he was used to. And, and that was the one where people told him afterward, Charles Brockton Brown and Benjamin Rush told him that what he had done was somehow signal that he might be advocating for atheism. And, and so I think that Big no, no, in the second great awakening and a no, no in Philadelphia, where there were a lot of, you know, strong believers. And so, so one of the things I tried to figure out was how did he do it? I mean, this again was, it was a, it was a lecture he had in the can. He, he knew this backwards and forwards. He'd been giving it, you know, for months already by that time. Um, so, but what they objected to probably was a combination of a particular choice of, he, he was trying to create a dramatic moment in the middle of the lecture where he signaled 
that we have good reason to worry that that progress might not be inevitable. And this was a time when a lot of people were worried about Napoleon. They were worried about war in Europe and what that might mean for the early United States, which was a very fragile place during this time. And so, uh, and so he was trying to signal anxiety, but I think it was also his performance of um, being in a room ordinarily used for religious services on Sundays mm -hmm. and probably um, a hasty gesture back at the pulpit that he was standing in front of. And so maybe there was this combination of the, the, the words he was, he was speaking as well as his actual physical performance and um, choices on stage, in other words. That, that conveyed it. But then he went to Boston after that. So within um, three months, he was in Boston giving lectures up there. And there, people really felt that he gestured too much. And so there was a, a sort of mini um, explosion of critics in the audience, in the, in the newspapers who didn't, didn't have anything to say about what he was talking about. They, they didn't, they thought that the subject matter of his lectures was just dandy, but they were worried about maybe an overly theatrical style. And over, uh, he, one person said he cares too much about the, the manner of his talk rather than the matter of his talk. And mm -hmm. somebody else referred to him um, as like a whip syllabub in an eggshell. And a whip syllabub um, is a frothy um, wine drink. Uh, it's almost like a desserty uh, wine drink that has a big froth of whipped cream or um, maybe whipped egg whites or something on top. And, and it's delicious, by the way. My neighbors decided to make <laughs> they're some. They're making me hungry. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're actually quite good. Um, but, um, but yeah, so I think that um, that was not a criticism that ever appeared when he was traveling in the South or in Kentucky or in uh, Tennessee. I mean, he ultimately visited, you know, the, the U.S. had 19 states at the time. Ogilvy visited 17 of them. And so he was just traveling everywhere all the time, reaching very different kinds of audiences as he did so. And so, but you know, even though a lot of critics in the Boston area thought that his, his oratory was too dramatic, it was too theatrical, he still sold out every one of his lectures. And so I think that there was something so new about what he was doing that a number of people just simply wanted to, to see what it was all about. Yeah. As you were talking about his reception in Appalachia, I mean, I, I can't help but wonder if, you know, the sort of very enthusiastic religious movements that are moving into the, 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 the basically moving West, these really, you know, enthusiastic religious practices, if that sort of prime people for his, uh, you know, really enthusiastic performance. Whereas in Boston, um, you had less of that. I mean, yeah. a lot of the really, you know, fringy groups had moved, you know, into Indiana and Ohio and so forth by then. Well, no, and they were also moving East. I mean, you know, so mm -hmm. a lot of the really ecstatic, enthusiastic religious practices, they, they were popping up all over the East Coast. And so you started to see, camp meetings of thousands and thousands of people 
all yeah. around the Philadelphia region, um, all up and down the East Coast. So um, yeah, and you know, I I speculate about this a little bit too, that that you know, it's really interesting for someone who had a bit of a reputation as uh, as an atheist in a time when there were not a lot of people committed to being atheists in this period. Um, it's really interesting to think about the ways that um, he was trying to urge people to use reason, to, to use their reason to think through important civic issues. But he also wanted to move people's hearts. And so he would pepper his lectures with not religious language per se, but a religious kind of um, style, you know, being the son of a minister, the grandson of two other ministers. Mm. He was someone who had always seen people um, muster up a kind of authority and a kind of the pleasures of biblical styles of, of um, address at the pulpit. And so I think he could really, he could really do a number on people's emotions. And every, all the reports talk about how you know, women would be wiping tears from their eyes as he recited poetry, or people would have goosebumps and so on. I think mm -hmm. he, he, he wanted to combine um, emotion with reason. Mm -hmm. but, but this was a time too when a lot of people were just really worried about demagogues. And, and so I think his ability to move people's emotions made people, a number of people worry that maybe he had the ability to advocate for atheism, even a little bit under the radar of the people who he was um, speaking to. And so I think that it, it made a lot of people nervous about maybe what he was up to. Hmm. That's really interesting. So I'd like to circle back to his drug use. Uh, <laughs> Jelaine Bauer asks if you can expand on your comment that opiates had a different effect then as opposed to now. Yeah, yeah. Um, this was one of the most interesting things. Um, I mean, you know, we have such an image of opiate use and what that looks like. You know, we imagine um, needles and alleys and, and you know, the op opioid crisis today and so on. Um, but at the time, um, opium was very widely used. It was really the only painkiller that people had. Um, and, and I think it's really important to know that it was incredibly cheap. It was something you just bought from anybody, you know, uh, um, a, a grocer, um, Ogilvy got it from his landlord when he was living in Richmond, for example. Other people had them at print offices. And I mean, opium was cheap. It was easy to get. It was, you know, and nobody understood that it was habit forming. And so, so people would take it maybe for, for pain at one point and then have a hard time getting off of it. But, but there was almost no public discussion about it being habit forming about, and they didn't use the term addiction, for example, um, which is probably, so, you know, we're sort of coming back around to refusing to use the word addiction in our own discussion of, um, you know, habitues of different kinds of narcotics. Um, but so at the time, you know, there was no, people weren't taking morphine. They were actually taking raw opium, which came in these sort of 
gummy balls directly from places like India and Turkey, uh, where they were harvested from poppies. Mm -hmm. And and what you would do um, for most people, and certainly Ogilvy was one of them, you would take a slice of maybe an ounce uh, off of one of these, these balls. You would simmer it for a long time in wine with other spices to take some of the bitter flavor away, and then you would drink it. So, so you would basically drop a few drops of, of this product, laudanum, they called it, this mixture of mm -hmm. wine and opium and spices, into a glass of water or a glass of wine and and you would take it that way and what's interesting about it is that people really believed that it was not a sedative they believed that it was really a bit of a stimulant and so people would take it before they went to a party believing as you might if you had a glass of beer before a party that it would sort of put a little color in your cheeks and it would make your conversation sparkle and it would allow you to not be quite so nervous about going to the party. There were all kinds of reports at the time of medical doctors taking opium before they engaged in any serious surgery. They thought that it, it clarified the mind. And in fact, it's amazing to find how many different um, opium habitues at the time believed that it was the superior stimulant of the age. They said, you know, tea and coffee make you jittery. Taking tobacco is not ideal. Um, alcohol just sort of blurs the mind. But opium, laudanum, actually clarifies your ideas. It, it makes you think clearly. It helps you think in an ordered way. And so in some ways, it was like an early 19th century study drug, you know, it was something that people, Ogilvy among them, um, didn't just take for, for pain, although they, uh, you know, many did, they could also take it so that they could stay up a little later at night and, um, and read or think, or in Ogilvy's case, he would stay up late and write new lectures. And, and for him, the, the opium, at least at first, until it became a real problem, which it did, um, actually helped him think more clearly, not less mm -hmm. clearly. Mm -hmm. I want to get to uh, Jelaine's second question, which is, um, if you know, and this, this is probably a long shot, whether the former Illinois governor, Richard, Richard Ogilvy, is a descendant of James Ogilvy. Well, I have no idea. Um, and I will say, though, that Ogilvy, he got married um, when he was living as a school teacher in Richmond. Um, mm -hmm. But his wife died after only about a year of marriage, and he never remarried. And as far as I know, there are no descendants of, of James Ogilvy. However, he had an uncle who um, really a generation before Ogilvy came to the US in the 1790s, um, his uncle had been a minister in, in the Richmond area actually during the revolution, but had decided to become to, to remain loyal to Great Britain during that time. And although he ultimately left the US um, after the outbreak of revolution and went back to London as a loyalist, his wife and his sons stayed in the Richmond area. And so they would have been Ogilvy's cousins. And so I'm, I actually don't know the genealogy of the family at all, but um, there were many close relatives who were Ogilvy's who did live in the US. Great. So um, 
I, I think one of the things that struck me and probably strikes everyone else listening to this is the passion you're bringing to this topic. Uh, we often have academics on here. You know, people speak from notes because we're a very careful, you know, group. Uh, and this is not to suggest that you are not careful, but you bring a magnetism. Uh, you know, perhaps you've been inspired by Ogilvy himself. But uh, I'd, I'd like to note that um, this is part of a new initiative at Omahundro, this book to seek broader audiences for books about early American history. So coming to this as a professor, how do you think about making a book that has broader appeal? Um, yeah, I, <laughs> when, you know, this is my second book, right? So I, I did a book for tenure and I think that- um, Cutlers. That's, <laughs> that's a very different act. But at this point, I wanted to write a book that that my parents would like to read, you know? I mean, um, that that I would enjoy talking about. I mean, I, I read a lot, but I don't often love what I read. I don't enjoy reading what I read. And so I read for argument, I read for evidence, I'm reading for very specific reasons. I wanted to try to write a book about this colorful character and the world he lived in, in a way that I would enjoy reading. And um, and so, I mean, what I found is that that's really hard. It really, <laughs> it took a lot of drafts. I mean, my editor at one point joked that she wasn't sure that she had read any book as much as she, uh, as many times as she had read mine. But I think that in some ways, the the style of writing the the style of writing that I was trying to get across to make it more approachable to make it enjoyable but also to be something that maybe I could use in classes mm -hmm. um, especially classes where I was trying to teach undergrads or graduate students to really think historically to to avoid that kind of dismissal or um, disdain for people in the past as being more uh, gullible or more um, naive maybe than we are. I wanted to write in a way that would really clearly convey that kind of message about the importance of what history can teach us by unpacking these periods of time in the past that, that look different than us, but they tell us a lot about the people who lived at that time and, and the kinds of choices that people had available to them. Really nicely put. We only have a couple of minutes left, but I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you a little bit about your time doing research in Philadelphia. Um, I've, I've already plugged your sheer fellowship at the library company, but I suspect you spent time at other institutions. Are there any you know, uh, notable discoveries that you made in your time at Philadelphia that you could talk a little bit about? Yeah, and I'll try to make this fast because I know that we need to wrap up. But um, it was really during that sheer fellowship that I discovered um, a letter, you know, at the at the Historical Society of, of Pennsylvania that that really upended the way I thought about the the story I was telling. And I'm not gonna I'm not gonna go into it because it's the last chapter, and the last chapter of the book has this kind of there's sort of a reveal that I want people to discover on their own, but I will say that what was so meaningful for me about that time at the library company and the historical society was not just finding that one great 
document and rethinking my entire project, which is, as many of your listeners know, that's a wonderful experience. I mean, a lot of us historians live for that moment when our own assumptions are completely changed, right? Mm -hmm. But it also allowed me the time to talk at length with the staff at the library company, the staff at the historical society about how to think about this new information I have in front of me. I talked to the other fellows about it. I was able to go into all kinds of new research that I had not been budgeting myself for, I have to say, but allowed me to get into medical research and research into maps and research into um, different kinds of ways or of portraying and treating certain kinds of diseases. All of it was just, it was one of the happiest research times of my life. And I mean, I'll, I'll never forget. And my sister will also confirm this because she came to visit me for a weekend when I was uh, trying to make sense of all of this stuff that, um, that it was really one of the most exciting times, not just for me as a researcher, but also for me thinking about the writing of a narrative arc of a story. And it changed the project entirely. I'm so grateful. That's so nice to hear, especially when you hear so many stories about people having that sort of second book slump, to have that sort of vital experience um, and to associate that not just with the collections, but with the community. Um, that, that, that certainly resonates with me. Um, and, um, you know, it's been wonderful hearing about this project. Um, I really do appreciate you sharing it with us. This happens to be my very last time hosting Fireside Chats. So it's just a pleasure to share it with you. And for all of you tuned in or listening after the fact, um, I would highlight the fact that uh, University of North Carolina Press has generously made available a promo code that knocks 40% off of this book. So you can get like a hardcover version of this book for 18 bucks, which is, I mean, like it's unheard of for a university press. So um, pick it up, read it, share it with friends, buy the stocking stuffers and so forth. And um, thank you again, Carolyn. I really do appreciate you coming on tonight. Thank you, Will. And I have to say, as a regular listener, that I'm really going to miss you and this series. I hope the series continues. The series, together. The so, series is full steam ahead. Don't worry. Okay, great. <laughs> Thank you so much for allowing me to come on the program. I've just had a great time. All right. Thank you again. Thank you all. Bye-bye.